come to this podcast to sit to listen to practice together and I'm continually reminded when we have these opportunities to assemble as a community how powerful it is to meet people who I've worked with trained with spent time learning from um, and teaching along with people who are just sort of coming into the stream um, it's very invigorating really to see how we're able to sustain ourselves and keep our commitment to the work alive. So for me, um, it's a, a, a tremendous touch point of uh, connection and, and one which I don't have as often, but I think through Zoom and through these opportunities, it's a great reminder. So what I'd like to do today is um, maybe start by breaking one of the cardinal rules in MBCT or mindfulness practice, which is um, usually we really, really, really try to prevent ourselves from telling people what's coming, what the conclusion is. We start with questions, we start with holding back. Um, but what I'm going to do today is maybe provide you with a little bit of um, uh, a foreshadowing of what I'd like to address and then we'll step through that in ways that involve some stories, some practice, and some data. I've been finding in uh, teaching mindfulness that very often it's easy to get hung up on certain ideas that then get in the way of the ability to have an encounter with, with a present moment that can be quite powerful. And some of these ideas are ones that I was very attached to at the beginning of my own work in this area. Things like, you know, you need to practice for 40 minutes a day, otherwise uh, don't bother. Um, because that's what I was told when I was getting going. So practice frequency was very important. There were also other dictums and other almost dogmatic ideas that um, were provided. And maybe at the beginning they were helpful to me because they allowed me to hang my hat on something that I could try and do or try to participate in. Eventually, though, they became barriers. And, and when I could let go of some of those ideas, I actually found that things unfolded in very different ways. So um, I'm thinking in some of the first mindfulness uh, MBCT groups that I led, uh, feeling very disappointed when patients at the end of the eight sessions would say something akin to, well, you know, this has been a very nice experience, but I don't really see myself continuing to practice for 30 minutes a day for four times a week. Um, but I've really enjoyed this and I would in my heart have this sort of sinking feeling like, well, you didn't get it and you should keep practicing or, you know, um, and after a while, I just realized that, you know, you really have to meet people where they are and they got out of the program, whatever they got out of the program. But even with that, there was still the possibility of some transformation. So that's just an example of, of, of how I found that some of the, um, concepts, I guess, that we are all exposed to at the beginning of our journey can be helpful and also hindering. And so that's why I titled this podcast, um, Is Insight Overrated? Because I think insight is one of these big funnels that draws people into the practice of mindfulness. And they also, it also draws people into the practice of psychotherapy and, 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 in, and in ways in which uh, the concept of insight is a, a large attractor to all of us. Um, it also brings with it an expectation and a certain type of um, way in which things are going to unfold if you, quote, end up getting it. 
you know, if you get it in the practice of mindfulness, then you'll achieve liberation or enlightenment. If you get it in psychotherapy, you'll have a moment of breakthrough. And people end up uh, searching for these things. Uh, teachers end up um, buying into these states of mind. And yet in some ways, I think what we're asked to do when we practice or when we teach is to um, release ourselves from some of those stereotypes or some of those notions, even from some of those attachments, and try to teach to a different place. And so that's the thing that I'm going to try and talk about at the end. But in order to get there, I think we need to start with maybe some definitions and some illustrations of how insight is represented both in the psychotherapy literature and in contemplative traditions. Um, so if we, if, if we look at um, just the general definition of insight, if we, if we go to a dictionary, um, what we'll find is that insight is usually defined as the ability to see and understand clearly the inner nature of things, especially by intuition. And so it's not a, a rational process, but it's something which pops up in the mind and is very compelling. And sometimes this is confused with uh, an aha moment. And the idea that an aha moment um, isn't exactly the same as insight, I think has been put forward by a number of people. And you can think of an aha moment maybe as something where, um, you know, you realize that uh, you've made a choice to go to art school after working at a number of jobs that you hated. And you just had that aha moment and the decision is I'm going to do this. So that's less of an insight, more of a um, way of coming to an, a conclusion that maybe hadn't been uh, in the uh, forefront of your mind, but it just finally appeared and you could tie some conviction to it. And the next thing you know, um, you're going ahead and making a big change. Now in psychotherapy, insight is, is very much part of what is um, represented as providing value in this whole endeavor. And insight here is essentially the promise that you can achieve a level of clear understanding um, and a feeling of liberation from some type of psychological burden. And so this burden uh, is clarified and you can see it as no longer having that hold on you. And sometimes these burdens might be um, represented as uh, thoughts about um, I'm inferior to other people, or I'm damaged, or I'm not quite as good, or um, other people won't take the time to um, get to know me. In seeing that as a driving principle or belief or assumption, uh, and then being able to encounter it repeatedly in a relationship with a therapist where people are working on um, examining that, then you can find ways of liberating yourself from it becoming less automatically driven by it and having a little bit more choice. Now, um, both of these um, examples are very vividly dramatized and they're often dramatized through um, this notion of a breakthrough. Often in movies or other ways in which psychotherapy is represented, there is a big breakthrough. So I'm just gonna give you two examples of a breakthrough that have I think um, established in our minds or in public sphere, the notion of how insight and psychotherapy works. So the first one comes from the, the popular television program, The Sopranos, essentially the inner life of a, a mafia uh, Don 
a gangster, a psychopath. Um, and part of the fascination of the program is that you get to understand some of his mental states and you see his horrible behavior, but it gives you just a moment of reflection of where some of this comes from. So Tony Soprano ends up going to see a therapist. And um, he goes to see a therapist because he has chest pains. But he doesn't really know where these chest pains come from. He doesn't really know what he's supposed to do in therapy. He doesn't really believe in it very much. And so the sessions have a sort of monotonous flow to them. He shows up. He is very um, unresponsive, not very interactive. But then he has a breakthrough, a flashback, a traumatic reliving of a memory of his father abusing him in his kitchen in front of his mother. And he has this moment of linking the chest pain and the fear he feels to the feelings that he had when he was much younger and helpless and defenseless, and the anger at his mother for not protecting him. And then this moment of celebration in the session with the therapist, where the therapist congratulates him on allowing himself to feel emotionally activated, to uh, allow himself to have a fuller range of emotional expression, and he's sort of sobbing, um, and she is validating him. And so this hulk of a man who is very um, aggressive, very menacing, becomes somewhat softer, and this is the big moment of breakthrough. So that's one. Another comes from a movie uh, that you might have seen called Goodwill Hunting, which is about a young man who um, is incredibly um, gifted mathematically. In fact, he works as a janitor at Harvard University. And um, he's a couple of scenes where he's sort of sweeping or mopping the floor. He goes into a classroom a math at the math department. And there are these equations that have been left on the blackboard. And he, um, he completes them. And he's just humble, lowly janitor. He completes these equations. He leaves. No one knows who did this. And yet he finds himself living with friends who are very skeptical about education. Um, he wants to continue in that social context. And he works with a therapist who gets him to see that his own personal devaluation comes from the fact that his foster parents never thought enough of him to express their love and affection. And so he internalizes that and continues to. Uh, lack belief in himself until there's this big moment where the therapist continues to repeat this phrase, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. And then they have this big moment of hugging and a lot of emotional expression. And um, that's a moment of insight. That's the best psychotherapy can be. And so we're left with and we're provided with these templates. And often they can lead to us searching for moments like this, for moments of um, this breakthrough, this emotional outburst, and then this settling of information in a way. Very dramatic, very um, discontinuous from a lot of our experience. Now, how are moments of insight represented in contemplative traditions? Um, I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from this really great book with probably one of the best titles I've ever come across, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. It's written by Jack Cornfield. So here's one example of a person who speaks about a moment of insight, a moment of uh, achieving an awakening. I had passionately devoted myself to meditation for several years, 
One evening, the teacher called us together for chanting, prayer, and a lecture. I was seated in the front row, completely attentive. In the middle of the talk, I heard the teacher say, your face is like a mask. That was like lightning in a clear blue sky. It cracked my world. In a moment, everything I thought I knew dropped away. I had done a hundred acid trips before coming to Asia, but they all paled compared to this. This was a whole new dimension outside all of the senses. It completely transcended my senses and identity and that thought um, that I thought I knew who I was. It was beyond pleasure and pain and ecstasy and joy. I wept for the beauty of it for a long time. That was six, 26 years ago. In all of these years, it's that unborn reality that matters beyond everything. It's a torch that illuminates everything. That's all there is. And somehow it's present in this moment too. So I don't think we're going to make acid trips part of the MBCT training curriculum, but if anyone feels strongly about it, you can contact me back channel. Here's another one. Here's another one. One day during the fall intensive training period, I was eating. I had been sitting, struggling for a number of days. I was trying so hard, determined to crash through every barrier and figure it all out. Who I am? What is this practice that I'm doing? I lifted my head and suddenly I understood completely, profoundly. Everything is all right just as it is. The whole world is completely whole. I didn't need to do anything. I didn't need to try so hard. It sounds so pedestrian when I say it now in words, but it was enormous. An astonishing revelation which instantly undercut all my questions and released me from the hundreds of ways I had always tried to change or fix myself in the world. There was an amazing physical dimension to it as well. My whole body dropped away, the shell or container of myself vanished, the bottom of the world dropped out. I had no shape separate from the world. My whole way of being released and changed over the months that followed. So much that people began asking me what had happened. So insight, dramatic, discontinuous, powerful, and very much a feature of the practices that we've both committed to, both in the therapy world and in the contemplative world. And so what's wrong or limiting about these perspectives? Um, one of the things that I believe is limiting is that they overshadow the reality that insight or these types of dramatic moments are actually a very small part of the journey of self-care and transformation that we embark on as practitioners and that we try to encourage as teachers there is a very powerful part to this work, which is called working through. And it's, also often, um, it's often eclipsed. It's often not really written about very much. It's often overlooked. It's less glamorous. It leaves itself less 
available to a kind of um, dramatic portrayal as we've seen in the movies. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that now. Working through in psychotherapy is the process of remembering, repeating, elaborating, and investigating. And it's really critical to the success of therapy. It's actually considered more important than the mere expression of negative affect. So the viewer watching Tony Soprano is left with the idea that he finally got in touch with this traumatic memory. He's going to walk out of the office a changed person because he had such a powerful experience in the office. Turns out he doesn't. He just goes back to doing what he does, um, hanging out at strip, strip clubs and killing people. But the working through process is really not what gets shown or not what gets demonstrated. And when you actually think about the parallels between the ways of working with the mind and the instruction and the guidance that's offered in contemplative practice, there are a lot of similarities. Remembering to return the attention to the breath if it's wandered. Repeating this over and over any period of practice. Investigating phenomena as they arise. These are the same things that happen in therapy. And what is really interesting is that research seems to bear this out. So there was a study that we recently completed where we looked at people who had recovered from an episode of depression. And we provided them either with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or a, a wellness version of cognitive therapy to try to stay well, um, a wellness-focused cognitive therapy. And then people were followed for two years afterwards. So if you are willing to follow with me, I might suggest that the eight weeks of the active treatment was the period in which we could talk about insight or new learning being acquired. And we could talk about the two-year period after therapy was over as the period of working through. And we looked at the degree to which insights were related to people staying well over two years or working through was related to people staying well over two years. And what we found was that whatever insights people acquired in the period of therapy, the eight weeks when they were practicing mindfulness or filling out thought records or engaging in scheduling activities or practicing um, noticing nourishing and depleting events, whatever learning occurred there, if people didn't continue to use the skills that they learned in therapy over the two years, they had a much lower rate of survival, in other words, preventing depression from coming back, than the folks who learned the skills, in other words, gained the insights, and then continued to use it in the period of working through over the two-year period. So the working through really contributed much more to them staying well than to the actual insights that they may have acquired in therapy and felt that they may have been sufficient. The Tony Soprano model of having had that powerful emotional episode in the session with the therapist and then kind of going back to his life, hoping or thinking that, you know, that would be sufficient, turned out not to be as powerful as the people who were able to take what they learned 
and continue to put it into play every day over the next two years. And this is, you know, perhaps a, um, a bit of a stretch to say that, you know, this is the period of insight and this is the period of working through. Likely there may have been periods of overlap. There may have been new insights on the follow-up, but it does show that once the actual training is over, once the moments of contact with, with, with teaching and with practice are over, it falls back to us to try to work through, to repeat, to remember, to focus and to investigate in order to utilize and to stay connected to these practices. Now, there are ways too here in which we can um, look at how people write about this. One of the best things that I've read um, in terms of working through is the Zen Cohen. And you can think of it as three separate panels. Carry water, chop wood, enlightenment. Carry water, chop wood. And so what this suggests at one level, because I'm sure that there are a number of different interpretations, is that insight doesn't really remove us from the requirement to live more fully back in our lives and to continue to work with what's present for us with this newfound perspective. At one level, from an external point of view, nothing has changed. Chop wood, carry water, chop wood, carry water. What has changed, however, is in the internal experience. The person chopping wood and carrying water after they've achieved enlightenment is a very different person. Their perspective on that activity itself is not the same as it was in the beginning, although to an external observer, they're doing exactly the same thing. The other thing is that it shows that, and I think this is really important, Life goes on during and after enlightenment is achieved. Everything in life is impermanent. Even enlightenment itself is transient. So if and when you are fortunate enough to achieve enlightenment, it's not like you can say to yourself, phew, thank goodness, I'm finally enlightened. That was a long journey, but I'm glad I've made it all the way to the end. The key to everything here from this perspective is that chopping wood and carrying water, if one does it mindfully, is really all the same. And if you're able to view everything as chopping wood and carrying water, then you realize that you can constantly maintain mindful awareness. And in that way, inhabit your life more fully. A couple of excerpts of people actually doing this come from the same book. So here's someone, this is a, a Vipassana teacher who is writing. In many ways, the spiritual transformation of the past decades is quite different from what I had imagined. I'm still the same quirky person with much the same style and the same ways of being. So that on the outside, 
I'm not that amazingly transformed or enlightened or different from who I'd hoped to become. But there's a big transformation inside. Years of working with my feelings and family patterns and temper have softened the way I hold them all. In the struggle to know and deeply accept my life, it has been transformative. And my love has grown larger. If my life was like a crowded garage where I kept bumping into the furniture and judging myself, now it's more like I've moved into an airplane hangar with the doors left wide open. I've got the same old stuff in there, yet it doesn't limit me like before. I'm the same person, yet now I'm free to move around and maybe even to fly a little bit. So the awareness and the insight is there, but the encounter with the same elements of life have not disappeared. And this is, this is, I think, an important perspective because this is really the nature of working through. It's continuing to chop wood, it's continuing to carry water, but bringing this new perspective to it. Here's another one. This is from a Catholic nun who's writing. There was plenty of pain and abuse in my family's past. One of my biggest challenges in my spiritual life came around shame. I grew up in an alcoholic family from at least my grandfather on down, and the sense we had of ourselves was shame-based. When it arises strongly enough, none of my practices and prayers work. I just don't feel good about anything. I'll be praying and a voice comes, you are a disgrace compared to what you should be. You are not using your gifts. You are not enough. Never enough. I used to be so caught and feel so terrible about all of this. But with good therapy and a great deal of inner work, I've come to understand it. Now I see it as a family cycle of shame that just arises. I know it for what it is. I can even say to myself, oh, it's just another cycle of shame. I can even laugh at it now. That insight and this continuous work has meant more to healing my heart than years of struggling to be holy. So there is a way in which these concepts um, show up and circulate in our teaching, in our own practice, but we can sometimes be pulled in one direction or the other to embrace them, especially if we have a longing for them that is um, part of what attracted us to this work in the first place. And so one of the things that I've noticed is that when we try and work with these ideas, it requires us to be able to hold both of them in our minds at the same time. And so if I was to um, revisit the title of my talk, I would probably have to say that, um, is insight overrated? Yes. And at the same time, it's essential. And then the question to us is, how do we hold both 
the notion of wanting something to happen and at the same in the same way also recognizing that we need to let go of that in order to create a space for whatever is there to arise and being able to do this and to model this for other people that we're teaching perhaps is one of the uh, fundamental ways in which we can convey to them the states of mind that are possible through sustained mindfulness practice. The openness of holding two concepts that may be diametrically opposed to each other, uh, um, overvalued and yet essential, and not to be pulled um, to promise one or the other, goes back to something which I think is very fundamental in the teaching. And we will encounter this, we will come up against this inevitably um, in teaching practices like the three minute breathing space, for example, practices where going into it, much of the buy-in from participants in MBCT or people who just wanna do it, comes from the possibility that there can be a real gain, a real benefit, um, a sense of ease, and yet at the same time, if we look back at the intention behind the practice, it has very little to do with gain <clears throat> or benefit. It has much more to do with making contact with our experience as it is. And so what I'd like us to do is to see whether we can drop into practice right now, do a three-minute breathing space together, and to see whether just leaving the contents of this discussion of, of, of this um, back and forth between working through an insight touches anything of the experience of the practice together, noticing ideas perhaps of how this could be helpful um, or just practicing a letting go and seeing what emerges. Either of those would be completely fine as an approach. So if you're comfortable, perhaps, just going ahead and allowing the body to shift into a way of seating that allows you to feel comfortable and supported. And going ahead and closing your eyes if that does feel comfortable to you. Beginning by simply connecting with sitting itself and perhaps touching into some of the sensations of sitting that are already here. The pressure in the soles of the feet, the chair supporting the weight of the body, the spine rising from the pelvis with the neck and head balanced, just sitting. And when you're ready, perhaps looking into the mind, asking yourself, what is my experience right now? What thoughts are here? What feelings are present? What bodily sensations are making themselves known? As best you can, simply allowing all of these elements to be here 
watching, observing them from one moment to the next without the need to alter or change them in any way. And now seeing if you can let go of the contents of mind and shifting your attention to a single pointed focus on the breath of the belly. Connecting with breathing in this region of the body and seeing if you can feel the sensations of the belly rising as you breathe in, belly falling as you breathe out. And just giving the mind one thing, this one thing to do, feeling the rhythm of the rising on the in-breath and the falling on the out-breath, moment by moment as best you can. And now seeing if you can expand your attention, allowing it to radiate outwards from the belly into the whole body. And feeling the whole body sitting and feeling the whole body breathing. From the crown of the head to the soles of your feet. One whole breath, one whole body. If you're willing, even allowing the attention to move further outwards beyond the body to feeling the air caressing the body or the clothes lying on the body. Or even into the space of the room you find yourself in. Holding all of this as best you can in a, a wider, more open awareness. And then when you're ready, just allowing your eyes to open. So I realize I've been speaking nonstop. 
Um, <clears throat> and we have a little bit of time left. So if there are any questions in the chat that I can answer or things that people wanted to raise, I know I left you with a bit of a question around seeing if this intentionality of holding both the value of insight and also the value of working through in guiding a three minute breathing space or your experience of it, something that arose, feel free to bring it up. I think we have a little bit of time to, um, to dive into some of the chat if there are some questions that wanna come through. Someone wrote, I now feel I have to have an insight. Be good if you could get one. I'm not serious about LSD offline. Here's a question. Um, is it fair to say that insight shouldn't be the goal of practice? Um, I think I think that that's something that you find in a lot, a lot of sources who write about insight, that chasing insight um, would probably be the wrong thing to use as your motivation for meditating. Once again, it's holding diametrically opposed points of view. In the Zen practice traditions, they say that you should be um, searching for insight with the fervor of someone whose hair is on fire. So that means very powerfully and, and, and very immediately. And at the same time, you have perspectives that also come from Zen. If you meet the Buddha, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. The notion that, that there can be an embodiment or a concretization of this knowledge, um, that you should be skeptical of that. So while at the same time in our practice, we may be motivated and we often read of accounts of people achieving some sort of liber liberation or some sort of enlightenment, we have to practice as if um, we don't expect it. And um, then be curious about events that appear in our experience and explore them. And sometimes the word insight is actually a misnomer, um, a much more process-oriented label might be awakening. People can experience moments of awakening. It's much more of a continuous process rather than insight, which is more of a dichotomous. You either have it or you don't. Um, sometimes, here, here's, here's an interesting one. Sometimes when you try to access your insight for a second, third, or fourth time, the feeling isn't the same. You don't get the same feeling of gratification or it doesn't feel as helpful or reassuring as the first time. What are your thoughts on this? Any way to keep the insight feeling powerful and helpful for longer? I don't know how many people have had this experience. I've certainly had that experience and some of it comes from um, coming home from a retreat. And I remember once coming back from a retreat that I did north of San Francisco and it was, it was terrific and we were in you know beautiful country. It was in Sonoma. Um, the retreat itself went well. 
And, and there I found myself in San Francisco airport. And I remember just looking up and seeing eight video television screens with CNN blaring some ridiculous, irrelevant news that I really wasn't interested in. But I was there nonetheless, and I could not hold on to the experience of the companionship and the, the teaching and the kind of co-journey with everyone. And I think I realized at that point that I wasn't at the retreat. I was at the San Francisco airport. And so I needed to learn how to accommodate to that. And it was an, it was an interesting and somewhat stark way of recognizing that. Um, but I think the idea is that because these insights may be less um, robust, that we can discover them again. I think that's the hopeful piece here, that through practice we can connect to them again. We may not be able to um, orchestrate or schedule them, but having touched into them once, I think the hopefulness is that we can touch into them again. Georgina, tell me how I'm doing on time, okay? Do I have time for one more? Yep, okay. Okay, so here's one um, from Marcello, who I think is in Brazil. I do believe 45 minutes is not necessary to achieve mindfulness benefits and insights, but at the same time, it is clear to me that as you practice more and longer, the benefits are deeper. We should say this to patients more open, uh, to patients more openly. Um, I think this is a great question. I mean, it's a question that I myself have found. Uh, I've changed my answer to that. I think my my initial answers to this question were um, there's really no alternative to practicing for long periods of time. And now I don't believe that as much. I mean, if you can do that, that's great. But I think as a general ask of people in our programs or people that are interested in practicing, I'm not as doctrinaire about it. But what I've come to understand instead is that the, um, the regularity of practice is actually what counts. Being able to do something on a daily basis or a you know, quasi-daily basis, even if it's brief, even if it is falling short of the 45 minutes, I think embeds it in someone's life in a way that makes it more integral to the overall intention of maintaining wakefulness, of, of, of maintaining contact with something that is about the mind. And um, you know, the qualifier is that it's always easier to do that if you've had a training base of times when you have sat for longer, if you have either gone on a retreat or you have sat at home. But, it's delicate, especially when we're introducing this to people for the first time. Okay, I think I'm gonna end here because I know Georgina has some things that she'd like to say. So thank you. I'm um, really pleased to have had a chance to talk about, or I would maybe say speculate about some of these ideas. Um, I do think our task as teachers is to be able to learn how to hold, as with any koan or any type of spiritual practice, dialectically opposed, at least to the rational mind, dialectically opposed alternatives in a way that can show people that we are not pressured to resolve them, but we can live inside of them and provide people with an understanding that they may be able to do the same thing for themselves. Thank you very much. Georgina? Thank you. Wow.